Man, God is good, isn't he? Yep. It's just, just really, uh, I don't know, I'm feeling kind of almost lightheaded after the worship. It was really good. Thank you. Just that, that yeah, God is so good to us and so incredible. And, and what he has done is just, there are really, it's really hard to find words to convey it. Uh, but that's my job, so we'll give it a try. Uh, so I want to talk about resurrection hope. And and I guess that I was I've been wrestling for a while with the world that we live in, right? And 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 the state of the world for me personally, for the people that I see and know, and for what I see going on. I mean, we started this morning praying for India, a country that's in crisis, uh, and it's not the only one, right? I mean, this this is just really obvious right now. It's been a country in crisis for a long time, but now it's painted it's writ large before us and it's into this world that our God came and and he did this thing that was so profound that it changes everything and that it that it, it turned the world on its head and, and it, it turns our understanding of the world on its head and our worldview on its head. Now, I, I did a philosophy degree, and I, I love it. I love thinking about thinking, which is what philosophy is, basically. It, but one of the things that comes up, and one of the things that I really, really enjoy in it, is this idea of worldview. And partly I, I like it because, for some reason, there's a bunch of philosophy that's written in German. Now, I don't speak German, I don't read it. But every now and then these words kind of come into it. And so the word in German for worldview is Weltanschauung. And I just, I just like to say it, right? It's really cool. <laughs> Weltanschauung. Yes. So I want to start there. So I will see if I can make this work. If not, can you change the slide for me, please? So before we get to Jesus, how does the world respond to the fact that bad things happen? Right? And, and, and to the fact that we die. Right? That's the blunt truth, right? People die. How does the world respond to that? Now, there are secular worldviews, and I'm, I'm being very, very reductionist here in the sense that I'm reducing a whole lot of complex philosophy down to a couple of basic ideas. But most secular worldviews kind of collapse into one of these views, right? And one of them, which on the left, right, materialism, is this idea that the material world is all there is. Sometimes it's also, people also call it scientism because it's kind of based on this idea that science tells us everything, absolutely everything we need to know about the world and there is no truth outside of science. And what science does is investigate physical things. So there is nothing spiritual, there's nothing else out there. And if you, if you actually look into that worldview, at the heart of it, and there's not that many people... Who, who really subscribe to this that, that will come out and say this, but it's, it's quite bleak, right? It really is survival of the fittest. It is suffering and death are just a fact of life. It happens. Suck it up, basically. It's just life. If you don't have it, you're lucky. If you do, tough luck. There is no consolation for it. There is no hope in it, really. 
And if you look at a book like The Selfish Gene, which was written by Richard Dawkins, uh, which kind of expresses this worldview in some ways, really the liberation that comes from this worldview is the recognition that actually all I exist for is to pass on my genes. Once I know that, well, I might as well just make the most of my life and do what I can to get ahead. And that's the kind of liberation, that's the hope that that worldview has. Now, it's not often expressed that starkly, and I'm expressing it starkly for um, some rhetoric effect, rhetoric effect, rhetorical effect, rather. But, but it is that, that's at the heart of it, right? The other thing you get, and you see this a lot in uh, what's called secular humanism, is this idea of progressivism, where, and this, this really came about in the Enlightenment, this idea that humanity is on this journey of, of development, and we're growing, and we're learning new things, and we're getting better at things, and we're creating wonderful new technologies that will one day solve all of our problems, and we will live in some kind of technological utopia. It's really, really pervasive in our society. You watch ads, there are a whole lot of ads that kind of play to this idea. If you get this thing, you're on this pathway, right? And don't get me wrong, we are doing amazing things technologically. But it's almost like everything that gets invented, someone invents it for a purpose, and people find another purpose for it. And that other purpose isn't always, as often, not what it, was, what it was intended for and not necessarily good. These cannot respond to death or suffering. So the first one, there is really, there's, there's no hope, just, just deal with it, it happens. And if you're, if you're fit, you'll survive. If you're not, well, that's probably better for all of humanity that you don't, right? Your genes don't pass on if you haven't bred. The second one, Sure, one day there might be a technological utopia that everyone lives in, but until that day, what about justice for all the people who've lived before that? Where's the justice for all the people who suffer in pursuit of that vision that, and, and don't actually ever get to see it? The people who suffer, who work as you know, child labour, right, as part of our progression to this utopia? What about those people? What about the suffering? Where is the justice for those people? Where is the, the, uh, the freedom from death for those people? There isn't any. Maybe in some magic technology kingdom in the future, there is, but that's not... Are we ever going to get there? Oh, I don't think so. Um, but so there are other... So you don't have to be a... You don't have to have a secular worldview. Can we change the slide, please? There are religious worldviews as well. Religious Weltanschauungs, just got to get it in there again. Um, and I'm, I'm, again, I'm being massively reductionist here. But there, actually, when you look at other religions, they don't really have an answer for death and, and to, 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 for suffering. So if you think about, um, so there's, there's basically, on one hand, there, there are religions that have an answer that's essentially escape, right? So, uh, you know, you can. Uh, in, and I'm, I'm, uh, you can transcend death and be absor- absorbed into the, the eternal nothingness in Buddhism, for example. Uh, you, can, you can escape the world to a heaven uh, that is out there somewhere, but that, still, that doesn't actually overcome death. It just means you kind of escape it. Death still rules on this earth. 
Or, you know, in, in more karmic views, you kind of have this cycle of just put up with whatever's going on and maybe the next life will be better. But you still die, you still move on. You know, there's no, there's no release from the tyranny of death. And there's no real release from the tyranny of suffering. There's not really any kind of hope to over, for, for those things to be overcome, for a better world and a better life. And people have been exploring this question since, they're, since, since they've been people. Well, since the fall, actually. Uh, so, what does Jesus have to say about that? Can you change the slide, please? So there's this wonderful... Uh, I've, I've, I've been thinking a lot about the disciples. And I think when I talked at Easter, I talked about the disciples... And how when you read the Gospels, they had really set themselves up to support a political Messiah who was going to come in and he was, and he was going to lead an army of 100 people to throw, overthrow the Romans. And I've been kind of going, how, does, how do you get into the headspace where you're one of these disciples and you're going, okay, there's like 100 of us, maybe 200 if we're lucky on a good day, and uh, we're going to go and throw out a, a legion of Romans, which is thousands of people thousands of soldiers trained soldiers and you go you kind of think okay how do, how do you get to that place where you think that it might be something that could actually work it's because you're following this guy Jesus right and what you've seen him do is calm storms feed thousands of people and in John 11 raise the dead right so we see the story where Jesus is out is, is not uh, in Bethany He's away, a couple of days away, and his friend is sick, and he gets news that his friend is sick. And they say, we should go back, and he goes, no, not yet. It's like, okay, weird. So they go back, and by the time they get back, Lazarus has died. And uh, one of his sisters, Mary, comes out and goes, well, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died, because she'd seen Jesus heal people. So she's right now going, death is king, because it's one here, right? And then you read the story, and Jesus questions her, and there's this particular bit. Let me see. I marked out these in my Bible, but um, whether or not I can find them easily is another question. So, so Jesus comforts the sisters of Lazarus. So on his arrival, Lazarus has been dead for four days. And this is on Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem and towards the confrontation with the, the, the powers of the world, the, the religious rulers and the secular rulers of the world. And uh, so there's this wonderful bit where Martha says to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would, have di- would, would not have died. Jesus said to, says to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I, don't, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So this idea of resurrection is in Jewish culture, right? And this idea that there will be, a, there will be a, a time when God resolves everything. And, and the, the dead will rise on the last day and there will be this new world. And so then Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. What a statement. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? To Martha. Do you believe this? 
Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. So she's connecting the fact that he's the Messiah with the resurrection of the dead. So Jesus' response, God's response to death is to raise the dead. I mean, it's kind of okay. Wow. You know, to go, well, actually, this death thing, it's not permanent. It can be overcome. And so going back to the disciples, you can see how, you know, I mean, no one really wants to get hurt, right? But you're going, okay, I've got my sword. I'm going to go up to Jerusalem. We're going to throw out the Romans. And if in that process I get hurt, well, Jesus can heal me. And if in that process, because he did this just before they went to Jerusalem, I die, we can raise me. What have I got to lose? So even though what they were hoping for in that time wasn't the thing that Jesus was doing, their faith in him to overcome any suffering or pain or death that they might endure in that process was there because like Martha, they believed that he's the Messiah. And so, so we have these worldviews, right? And there's secular ones and religious ones, and, the, and none of them really answer the question of death or suffering. They all try and kind of avoid it or placate it in some way or say, oh, well, it, it's, you know. It, none of them really come and deal with this thing that we all face. Jesus came inhabited our world inhabited our pain inhabited our suffering inhabited our death and then rose again on the third day to overcome it all John 6 right? James just read it I'm the bread of life true food and true drink whoever feeds on me will live and have eternal life the answer is right there in Jesus, right there. Resurrection, our resurrection hope is that it can all be overcome. And the reason we know it can all be overcome is because in history, right? So I'm not just talking about stories, right? And that, but that actually, this is a historical document. Jesus rose from the dead as evidence, as first fruit as the promise, as the seal for us that that too is our future. And man, isn't that good? Isn't that good? I mean, it's, it's amazing. It changes everything. And I, I mean, I'm still, you know, I've been grappling with this for, I don't know how long I've been a Christian, a long time, right? And every time I come at it, it comes, it comes to me new. You know, last week James talked about how us, the, the, what Jesus did separated us from our sins as far as the east is from the west right that, that, that there's no there's this infinite chasm between us and our sin and I find it really hard to live in that truth because I know myself and I know that I don't walk that way that well right I, I, I do stuff and I'm like and I'm just like oh man I stuffed up again 
But that doesn't stop it being true. He paid for that one time, once on that cross. But you know, the reason, there's, there's two reasons we get saved. One of them is a means to an end, and the other one is the end itself. The end itself is that for you to have relationship with the creator of the universe, right? For you to have relationship with God through Jesus and his sacrifice. He has cleansed you of your sin so that you can have that kingdom power, have that kingdom relationship with the king, with the creator of everything. And wow, if that was it, that would be amazing. That would be enough. That's the end, right? So he saved us. That's an end in itself. But it's not the only thing. And often, and, and I see this in the Western church a lot, and maybe it happens elsewhere, we often, that's what we talk about. I've, I'm saved, so I have a relationship with God. Great, awesome, wonderful, incredible, and I don't want to diminish that at all. But he also saves us as an instrument, right? We are, we are saved to be instrumental in his plan of building out the kingdom, of saving the world. And the resurrection is the hope that we have that we are good with God and he's going to overcome whatever comes against us. And it is the power to go and do what he would have us do. Because as I started with, we live in this world that is broken. And if you want to see this in action, I just, I, you know, I, I love the followers of Jesus because they just they help me understand myself, right, and my walk. Because you get this thing where they go up to Jerusalem, full of faith that Jesus is the Messiah, fighting for the wrong thing, right? So Jesus has come to overthrow death and tyranny and sin, right? At the end of the day, the ultimate uh, thing that an empire, and I mean, by empire I mean like the Roman Empire, but there are also other kinds of empires that are less obvious, right? Empires of, um, like empires of the mind, like capitalism or, um, or uh, philosophies that, that rule our thoughts. What they, what the ultimate aim, the ultimate thing they have over us is they can kill us. But if death has been overcome, they have no power. And so these disciples go up, thinking that. Well, the Roman, what are, what's the worst the Romans can do? Kill us. Well, he raised Lazarus, so surely he can raise me. And they go up there, and, they, and, and, and then it all falls apart. Jesus gets arrested and handed over, and they watch him get tortured and killed. They run for the hills, right? They, they flee, and then Jesus comes, and there's these wonderful bits at the end of, um, you know, of John and, and in Luke. And in Matthew and the start of Acts, where Jesus really beautifully and gently restores them. He goes, you were right, but you were wrong. Here's how it really is. And they are transformed. And oh, how transformed they are. I mean, man, the, the, the change in these people and the people they then talk to is profound. So uh, let's jump into Acts. So uh, just actually, just quickly, in Isaiah 25, right? So 
In first, um, I actually lost track of where I am on my slides. Can you do the next one? I'm just off on a tangent, I think. Is it? It's all good. So, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, is reflecting on what Jesus has done. And I really encourage you to read that chapter. It's, this, it's quite full on at times, but it's Paul unpacking resurrection. And in it, he quotes Isaiah 25, 8, which says, so I'm going to start from on, on uh, 7. On this mountain, he will destroy the, the shroud that enfolds all peoples. I wonder what that shroud is. He will swallow up uh, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. So this is the promise. Isaiah is seeing this day. Right? He's, he's seeing this day. Oh, cool. So God will overcome death. Death cannot win. And then in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, 56, uh, he says Paul's response to this is that the sting, he says, oh, death, where is your sting? And the sting of death is sin. But if death has been overcome, sin has been overcome. The, the sting of death has been overcome. So we are, we are freed from this. De- sin cannot win. Whatever is going on for you in your life, whatever battles are going on in your mind, whatever temptations you face, however often you might fall and give in to temptation, sin is not going to beat you because he has beaten it. Tyranny will not win. Empire will not win. Right? If we go, if you look at John, and I did not make a note of this one, so... Uh, let me find it Jesus is talking about his authority and what he says is for the father loves the son and shows him all he does yes and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed for just as the father raises the dead and gives them life even so, the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to his Son. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, we, I think in our culture, judgment has this kind of negative association with it, right? If someone's judging you, that is a bad thing, right? Oh, don't judge me. Because actually we're all broken and we're flawed and we cannot give good judgment because we just come from a perspective and, and we really, rather than giving judgment, mostly what we're giving is condemnation. And we're just using judgment as an excuse for it. But if you read the Bible, judgment and God's judgment is unrepentingly a good thing. It is a good thing that God will come and judge the world. Absolutely. When we say, Jesus, come, we are asking for him to come, as in Revelation, on the clouds, and judge the world. And, and that is a good thing. God's judgment is perfect. Jesus' judgment is perfect. And he will come 
you know, so we, we talked about that uh, secular worldview, right, where one day we might be in this wonderful kingdom, but all the people who went before it are going to die and suffer, and there's nothing. There's no justice for them. That is not God's plan. There will be justice, perfect justice. Tyranny, empire, will not win, cannot win. You know, and if you read Revelations, right, there, there's these stories about, I mean, the, Revelation 19, it talks about that the Jesus coming as king on a sword, on a horse with a sword coming out of his mouth and destroying kingdoms and empires destroying those things that set them out set themselves up sinfully against God those things that would hold power the power of death over people he lays waste to it all and and that is a good thing that his new kingdom will not be founded on fear his kingdom the second resurre- the resurrection that we will all inherit that we that will happen for us all will not be founded on fear will not be founded on tyranny will not be founded on uh, people having power over other people it will be founded on love it will be founded on freedom and it will be founded will be founded on on people working with god to co-create in this new universe this new kingdom so back up the truck a little bit go back to the disciples they 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 between jesus appearing to them after he died and then about there's this period of about 50 days or 40 days when he teaches them and then then we have acts right and we see these people and they are just changed their their world view has changed they are no longer afraid of death i mean to be honest i think they still feared it right there's that thing i'm not afraid of death i know if i die i'll be raised i don't want to hurt right i don't want to be hurt you know and and that's perfectly normal but it can't win and they go into this and they and they so let's go to uh act seven Stephen, who's not wasn't a disciple, uh, but was uh, an early man of God, and he ministers. He ministers in power, and he he. Uh, so, if you at the very start of uh, at the very end of Act Six, you hear him talking about how he ministers in power and the Holy Spirit, and he's doing all this stuff, and he gets hauled before the religious leaders because he's proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. And there's this bit where they kind of question him, and he just rebukes them. Right? I'm just like, dude, bold. And and he he speaks, and he just rebukes them. He goes, "You haven't understood your own scriptures." And then uh, they take him outside the city, and he blasphemes because he sees Jesus enthroned. He sees through the veil, right? The, in, in in Corinthians one thirteen. It talks about how we are, you know, we see through a glass darkly, or we see there's, we th- see through a veil, and there's this kingdom on the other side. He sees Stephen sees through that clearly for a moment, and sees Jesus enthroned there as the Lord of the universe, right? As the Judge, as the King, and he says that, and then they stone him to death, and he goes to be with his master, James, brother of John, Acts twelve. It's just there in the line, right? It says, and Herod took him and executed him by the sword. 
and then imprisoned Peter. This guy who had been walking with Jesus since he was called out of a fishing boat on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And, you know, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of Thunder, who had argued over who was going to be, um, you know, which position they were going to have in Jesus, Jesus' court when he threw out the Romans who then became one of these people who, who transformed and, and was an agent of transformation in Jerusalem. And he was taken and killed because Herod was wanting to please the people. And if we jump forward to Acts 16, and I just love this story, and I'm, I don't really have time to go into it in depth, right? But Paul and Silas... Uh, you know, uh, uh, in town uh, on, on, you know, on a missionary journey. Uh, I think they're in, is it Ephesus? I can't remember where they are, but they're going along and a slave girl who's possessed with the Spirit says, starts calling out that these, are the, these people are the, you know, the, the, the agents of God. And you think about this, right? I, I, oh. So then Paul turns around and casts the demon out because actually... The resurrection power, so yes, he has been saved. Right? He has that first thing. As an end in itself, he now has a relationship with God. He also has access to that kingdom and to that resurrection to then bring that into being right where he's standing, right there. And then I want to, this is where I want to end up today, right? That he, he then speaks and casts that demon out. And it's just madness. You know what happens? People who own the slave are upset because they've lost the revenue stream. Talk about sin and empire and tyranny. They were keeping that girl enslaved, possessed, because she would prophesy out of that possession, and people would pay for that. So they're upset because the person that they had kept enslaved as property is now set free. Oh, but we can't make any money off her anymore. So wrong. That doesn't happen now at all, does it? No. Um, so, you know, and, and so they then get taken into town and uh, they have their clothes torn off them and they're beaten with rods and they're thrown into prison and they are put in stocks, which are a torture device, right? And, and then it says at midnight, and I, I remember I just every time I read this, I hit, I think it's verse 25. Um, can you go to the next slide, please? Oh, no, go back. We're not, we're not there yet. Um, uh, I think it's verse 25 and it says it's near midnight and they're singing hymns and I'm like stripped, robbed basically of all their possessions beaten with rods, right, so bits of wood about this thick right? smacked around with those imprisoned in stocks, right, so stocks basically put your hands and your feet out like that and you sit there and you can't, you can't move, you can't rest singing hymns and the other prisoners are listening it's just like, what? What is going on? How can you be doing that in that situation? Because they have been transformed by this resurrection hope. They know that whatever is happening now is, is, is passing. And if at that point they die, well, they go and have rest with Jesus before and they get to wait for that new heaven and new earth. What's the worst that can happen to them? They die and get to go, with, go and be with Jesus. I mean, Paul says elsewhere, 
actually, I think I'd prefer that. But I'll stay with here because I'll stay here with you because you need me. So, so they just the, these people, their thinking, right? And Paul was one of the people who stood by, stood by and approved of the stoning of Stephen. Talk about transformation, right? He had persecuted the church, persecuted the, the Christians, and then. And, his, and you read his accounts of what he has suffered in the ministry. And that's not accounting for all the people that we don't read about that followed Jesus. So um, just at, at, with the disciples, right? So this, this band of merry men um, who, who thought they were going to throw out the Romans and then actually then bought into a much bigger and amazing, much more amazing vision of this new heaven and new earth, and that they could be agents of that new heaven and new earth now in their time, right there, wherever they were standing. Eleven of them, by about 70 AD, or around in that time, had been killed for it. Now, there's a lot of people who go, oh, the resurrection's not real. And, and one of the things, one of the pieces of evidence that you can use to argue that it's real is that these 11 people died for it. And, you know, John uh, was tortured for it. Uh, and, and, and so, like, they talk about Peter being crucified upside down, another one being crucified on a kind of X-shaped cross, killed with swords. And then you look at the other persecutions, right? In the time of Nero, uh, Christians were in the circus and fed to wild animals. So, but so the, you look at the disciples, right? The, the the crowd that ran away when Jesus was arrested, right? his his fiercest supporters fled in the dark, now dying for him, and they believed he could raise them from the dead when they ran away, right? So something bigger has happened here for them. They've really got it. Now, people don't die for something they know is a lie, do they? If you know, without a doubt, we stole his body from the grave and we're just doing this because we want to get rich off it, which none of them did, right? but that's one of the things people say. You don't die for that. You're like, uh, no, cross? No, 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 I, I, I was wrong. Actually, I'll just quietly exit stage left. Stephen, when he was stoned to death, the last thing he said was, forgive them. So these people had been profoundly transformed by Jesus' resurrection and what that meant for them. And that it meant their resurrection. And that it meant they can operate and work today. And that it meant that whatever they went through you know the and you read Paul's letters and this comes up again and again and again I consider my present trials nothing compared to the glory of God that will be revealed and he's not he's not diminishing it he's not saying it's not awful it's not bad but compared to the promise it's nothing there is real hope here not just the hope of somehow escaping the world and death still wins here. Right? There's, a, this, there's this thing that has slipped into uh, 
a lot of the Christian church where we, th- where we talk about, I'm going to, you know, the, the, the goal is to go to heaven. That's not what I see in the New Testament. The goal is to, to, to be prepared and to prepare the world for the full realization of the kingdom of God. For the new heaven and the new earth, for the resurrection of the dead, for the judgment of everything, for God's righteous judgment, and for peace to reign, and for, the, for us to have eternal life. So for us, right, so now, that thing could happen today. Absolutely could happen today. Jesus could come on the clouds today and we'll be like, whoa, I wasn't expecting that. Even though we should be. But we wouldn't. I know I would be. I'd be like, oh, oh it's today? <laughs> um, okay, I'm not sure I'm ready. Uh, but I don't have to be ready because he's ready. He's, been made re- he's made me ready. He's re- you know, I'm ready because of what he's done. But, or it could happen in a hundred years or a thousand years. So we, our call, right, and this is where I want to land today, is, so there's, there's two things that can happen to us. One is that he comes, and, and it all happens, and man, that'll be good. It'll be good. And, I, and I, I, I want to live in that world. You know, in Hebrews 11, it talks about the unseen kingdom, or the unseen city, rather, that, that inspired all those heroes of the faith. They got a glimpse of that. They got this glimpse of this place like Isaiah has. And they're like, man, that is worth fighting for. And that is worth fighting for today. That is worth being a part of God's plan today. That's about that. And we, how we choose. So we have, there's this quote that I heard a long time ago. uh, And I think it was by an Olympic medalist. And the quote was basically, think in days and years, not weeks and months. And and what that means to me is, I've got, actually, I've only got today. Do what I can today. And, and, and live how I can today, but also live with my eyes on the hope. So their, their thing was winning a medal in four years' time. And if they went, and, and if they went I'm going to, okay, I'm going to do my training today, and then tomorrow, and then the next day, and then the next day, and then the next day, that becomes this insurmountable task. If they're thinking in weeks and months, how do you, how do you deal with that? Because it all seems too big. But if you go, I'm aiming for a medal over there, what I can do there to get to that is this today. I'm aiming for that kingdom over there, whenever it comes. And what I can do is this today. What's in front of me? And, and so there are two outcomes for me. One is that uh, Jesus doesn't come before I die. In which case, what it does say in the New Testament is that people go to have a period of rest with Jesus. To wait on the new heaven and the new earth. And in Revelation, there's this thing where the saints are crying out, when are you going to do it? Right, so they get to go and wait, and they have that peace and that rest, and then it happens. Or he comes, and it's all on. So, you know, there's this thing where I get fearful of people. 
I get fearful for myself, right? Even just today, you know, I was having these really random weird thoughts about, um, you know, having, I, I was having really weird thoughts about, oh, what would happen if I had a stroke, right? I mean, just, you know, and it's, there's this kind of fear-inspired stuff. And I can't stop those things from happening. But God is bigger than that. Whatever happens to me, he's bigger than all of that. He who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. And so what does it mean for today? I cannot promise you a life without pain. And anyone who, who does is lying. Right? They're trying to sell you something. Uh, I can't promise you a life without death. But I can promise you an eternal life that overcomes pain and death. So can you go to the next slide? There's this great song by John Mark McMillan. And uh, I just want to, I've got all the words up here, but I want to dig into a couple of bits of it. So, um, so he's got this wonderful refrain. Well, I've got no answers for heartbreaks or cancers, but a saviour who suffers them with me. Singing goodbye Olympus. The heart of my maker is spread out on the road, the rocks and the weeds. And then he says it again. I've got no answers. So uh, I love the second verse in this. Right? Uh, you know, come down from your mountain, your high-rise apartments and tell me of the, of the God you know who bleeds. Sorry. And what to tell my daughter when she asks so many questions. And I fail to fill her heaviness with peace. Well, I've got no answers for hurt knees or cancers, but a saviour who suffers them with me. Singing goodbye Olympus, the heart of my maker, is spread out on the road, the rocks and the weeds. And it's funny, the bridge, which is the bit in the top right hand, top, top right hand side, when he sings it, I've never quite been able to hear what he sings. And so it wasn't until I looked up the words, what he's saying here, right, and Aphrodite would not weep, nor Zeus suffer for the weak. All those other worldviews, all those other things, they have no answer. But have you come to stand inside my pain? That's our God. That's what he's done, and what he's doing, and what he will do. And then the, the end really brings it home, right? So that's... The, that is our resurrection hope. He has, that he has overcome death and suffering. But in the end, shall I plant sequoias and revel in the soil of a crop I know I'll never live to reap? We are called at times into things that are far beyond us. We really are. You know, we're called to labor in a field. And sometimes we don't see the plants grow in that field we're clearing the rocks out of that field and I know there are things that I've that I've been called to and Natalia's been called to and it's felt like that where we're laboring in a field and we're we're plowing the field and you hit a rock and you dig the rock out you take it out to the end of the field and you just carry on plowing and there's no fruit right it doesn't but we are planting seeds for that kingdom What we do today sows into 
the new heaven and the new earth. In all sorts of ways we can't understand. In informing us and our character. But actually if you, you, know, you, you read Revelation, the clothes that the, bridegroom is dressed, that the bride is dressed in are the deeds of the saints, the deeds of the martyrs. Then so my body to my maker and my heart to my saviour and spread me on the road, the rocks and the weeds. Now I don't know what that means for you, right? In your life, it doesn't mean we all have to um, rush off and be missionaries somewhere or do something. What it means is, what is it, what does today look like for you? How are you ready for him to turn up? And how are you readying the world for him to turn up? And that might be going to work, being light in that place. It might mean um, loving your kids when they're throwing tantrums at you. It might mean buying someone a coffee, giving some money to someone on the street. It might mean praying for somebody who's in pain. It might mean just anything. It's, just, it's those things, right? What is it today? You know, and how do you, to quote John Mark McMillan, sow your body to your maker and your heart to your saviour? Because that's what he's called us to. We are his new temple. We are the place where the kingdom breaks in through his resurrection power, not through anything that we have, but through him and his love to us and his power to us enables us to walk forward towards that kingdom. And what, you know, we can't, we're not building the kingdom. That's God's kingdom to build. But we can build for it. We can work towards it. It's God that's going to save the world. It's God that's going to judge everything. But he calls us to be his partners in that. And man, wow, that is amazing. That is, that is I don't know, beggar's belief, really. When I think about who I am, that he would, he would ask me to, to do anything. As, you know, just, yeah, as he, he's so good. Um, I think on that note, um, I'd like to pray. Um, uh, so if we could stand. Lord, I don't know what you want to do right now. We wait on you. So there's a couple of things that come to mind. Uh, and I wonder if there's others who might have a word as well. Um, if you do, then maybe come up and we can share that too. But I know we almost, there's this thing where we, we live in the darkness and we are the light in the darkness. But sometimes it can feel like the dark is overwhelming and the light is small. And it can feel like, you know, that hope can be like a flickering candle. Uh, 
And so I think that if if you're feeling like that, like you're you you're not feeling very connected to that hope, and that there's uh, anxieties or or stresses or ailments that are assailing you, then I just I'd love to pray for you. There's hope. And, his, and pray for his resurrection power and his resurrection hope for you. And the other thing is that sometimes it can be hard to hear uh, a message like this and go, but what do I do with it? And there is a, there is a sense in which there is vocation and calling for us, but, and if you want that, then I'd love to pray for that for clarity for that but there's this, also this sense of just seeking God every day and being and being empowered to um, to quote Heidi Baker to just to love the one in front of you and that kingdom love and so um, if you want prayer for either of those things it'd be love to pray with you